Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Childs. Welcome to Empire State Engagements. On today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Kara Murphy-Schlichting about her book, New York Recentered. We talked about the role of the environment in making the modern metropolis, the creative push and pull between central planners and peripheral priorities, and the value of approaching this history at the grassroots level. Local history and local municipal archives, neighborhood libraries, branch libraries, are places we can still tell new histories about New York. Excited to be joined today by Dr. Kara Murphy Schlichting. Uh, Dr. Schlichting is Assistant Professor of History at uh, Queens College, City University of New York. And she's joining us today to talk about her wonderful book. Uh, and it is New York Recentered, uh, which is a fantastic and important revisionist history of uh, the making of modern New York City and a work of environmental history, urban history, political history. Uh, it touches on so many important themes in late 19th and early 20th century United States. And so I'm just overjoyed to have her joining us on the show today. So welcome, Kara. Lovely to be here, Rob. So uh, first of all, I, there's something you ask in the beginning of your book, uh, and I think you answer it uh, in a number of ways throughout. Uh, who counts as a city builder? Uh, tell me how your book sort of reframes generally and how your work sort of reframes what we think of when we think of urban history. Uh, you challenge certain notions about development from the center to the periphery, from the top down, et cetera. Uh, but I'd love to, to let you talk about uh, that as a sort of opening, and then we'll get into some of the fun stories from the book. Excellent. All right. So the question is, who counts as a city builder? And I was curious about this because I was in graduate school. This is a book that came out of my dissertation, and I was in graduate school at Rutgers, which is the State University of New Jersey, and I was um, living in New York and commuting. And I was very aware of two things, of the networks of regular people that moved through the metropolitan region in the early uh, 
21st century. And I was aware that New York is often, when we say the word New York, what we often mean is Manhattan. But as a graduate student of limited means, the places that I could experience New York were often the outer boroughs. And add to that, I was part of this kind of commutation network where I would go to Penn Station and I would take the train to New Jersey, or I, had, I was raised in Connecticut, or I would, and sometimes I would take the train from New Jersey to Penn Station, walk across to Grand Central, across Midtown, and then take the train out to visit my mom and dad. And so I was living this really metropolitan regional existence as a person with no power, and Manhattan was only a tiny corner of the New York that I was experiencing. And so I was curious about this fascination, rightly so, with the power brokers of Manhattan. And of course, we should think about powerful mayors and city builders. Um, you and I have already started talking this, um, this meeting about Robert Moses, he's kind of inescapable. And um, you're like an expert in a powerful governor. And so there's a real role to these powerful city builders. And if we take um, an imaginary perspective and you think, where does the where does the perspective of this person or this story, where's it situated? And in my mind, those stories are situated in Manhattan, maybe without Smith, it's Albany. But so often the, the way we situate in our mind's eye where the stories are coming from is Manhattan. And from my experience, Manhattan was just the thing I was moving through to get to the other corners of my metropolitan life. And I thought that that probably wasn't just my story because being at Rutgers and taking social history courses, I was very interested in that classic history from the bottom up. And I was also taking urban history courses, which particularly in the fields of history of planning tend to be top down because of where the archives lie. And there's really good reasons to do that history that way. And so I wanted to know, what if I got to New York City's history? If I, I got to it through a kind of, kind of mobile metropolitan region and everyday people? And what if regular people making regular everyday choices in their neighborhoods and on their blocks also had a say in how the city's form developed, but also what the idea of a metropolitan region was? So it was a little bit of being inspired by my own mobility and my own location on the kind of, I was better off in the economic fringes of the outer boroughs as lots of graduate students are. And think about what that looked like in the past. That's great. So, so you were living in this sort of regionalism that you described the creation of uh, in this work. Um, well, I think uh, it's a really fascinating uh, approach because you sort of turn on its head this old attitude toward uh, urban uh, planning and, and city building history. Um, and there's a few characters who pop up uh, in uh, your narrative who may be the more traditional approach would center on, but whose grand schemes really get uh, completely transformed and moved in different directions by local actors. Um, one of them uh, was Andrew H. Green uh, and his sort of grand view of New York moving up into the Bronx. And you tell this wonderful story. I think it's in the second chapter. I want to go back to the first chapter later, but uh, while we're on this idea of, of different people, sort of different interests interfering with the, the centralized plans, I love your stories about the birth of the Bronx and the way people view waterways, which of course, 
another important contribution you have is sort of uh, centering uh, the, the, the shoreline. And, and I'd love to talk more about that moving along. But, but let's talk about how um, all of a sudden um, somebody like Andrew Green can recognize that a river like the Harlem River is no longer a border, but rather something that can bring people together. And yet it's not him, but rather a lot of sort of at the time isolated upstart communities who are seeking connection uh, that are really pushing uh, this birth of the Bronx uh, as you describe it. So Andrew Green is a really good example of um, of a figure that could, that has new things to say if we get outside Manhattan. So Andrew Haswell Green is best known as the father of Greater New York. He's a civic leader um, who pushes for the five borough city that is consolidated, eventually consolidated in 1898. So I started to read his his papers and the reports that he helped write as part of the Board of Commissioners of Central Park and then um, in his advocacy for the consolidation of the five borough modern city to think about how we wrote about the edges. And I, of course, was going to New Jersey and thinking about Connecticut and thinking about the five boroughs. But I understood that there's that tension of metro of regional scaled history and local history that you have to make choices and thread a line. And I decided to pick just two corners of the metropolitan um, periphery to, to focus on. And there was a great argument to be made that this book should have been written thinking about greater New York and New Jersey and that relationship, not just the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, but the long history of that these two states on either side of the mighty Hudson and how they have related to each other in regional urbanization. You could have done it like that, but I wanted to know about the Upper East River and Long Island Sound, the eastern half of the city, because that was the one I was most familiar with. And I was, like all scholars do, trying to think about my case studies. And so I was interested mostly in the Bronx and Queens as the, the periphery I wanted to look at, because they're the ones that, besides Staten Island, are most often ignored. Brooklyn and Manhattan get lots of interesting history. But the Bronx, there was just so little. And I was so curious to know about these edges. And so I decided in my first, that's actually the first chapter I wrote. So it's actually, uh, it's a good place to start. You didn't know that, but that's the first chapter that I wrote. And so I just said, I'm going to read everything I can in the late 19th century about the Bronx, which turns out to be a kind of short list. <laughs> and I wanted to know about this peripheral edge because it seemed to capture to me the local people and the metropolitan reframing that is happening in the late 19th century. So in 1840, which is kind of, you know, kind of mid-century, when this book opens, New York is Manhattan Island, uh, political in its political jurisdictions. And its urban development is really the southern half of Manhattan Island. 59th Street, where Central Park starts today, is really the northern edge of the city. But between the 1840s and uh, 1898, New York takes on, it annexes what is today the Bronx in two separate pieces in the 17, in the 1870s, and then again in the 1890s, actually three years before consolidation. And the city becomes a metropolitan region through the Bronx. It's the first time that it's not gonna be an island insular city. It's going to have a sprawling 
network and it's its only mainland connection to the rest of America is the Bronx. So all of these questions started to come up when I just started to read the archives deeply. And I thought, this is great, I'm gonna write about the Bronx. And Andrew Haswell Green became like a real guide. He's um, a guiding light. And I couldn't believe when I started to read his reports and his papers, how much he had an ecological view. And as an environmental historian, we often are tasked with reading sources that have been looked at for political history or labor history or social history um, and say, well, what, what other ways can we read these documents? Because it's, a, as American history goes, it's one of the newer, it's now got a full generation or two of scholars working in it. But environmental history lets you read documents in New York City history and ask new questions which is really fun. And all of a sudden, Green had all these kind of environmental framings to think about New York and the Harlem is the center of that. He says it's crazy to look at just the southern half of the Harlem and not the northern half, that a river has two banks and it's a singular system and that the city is really, it's hampering its own growth if it's using it as a border rather than as, than as connective tissue. And so that's Green's perspective. And what I didn't expect on the other side is that when I too started to look at the Harlem as connective tissue rather than a, a geographic border, is that all these other people in what we would today call the South Bronx felt the same way. There are all these local political interests who are eager for the opportunity that urban growth on Manhattan represents. And it's some of the typical, right? We see some Tammany politicians who are there looking to create influence over new development, which is the classic Tammany Upper East Side. Right? They're, they're interested in growing their influence in public works. And I feel silly saying this to you, Rob. Have you heard about these people in Tammany Hall? <laughs> but it is a case even in the 1870s in the Bronx, what's today the Bronx. And then there are lots of like really like very much local people who say like the little town a little town that looks at the city grid of New York, which we call North, South, East, West today, but it's not North, South, East, West. It's actually kind of kitty cornered. It's not a cardinal grid. And they don't make a cardinal grid. They make a grid that matches the, the kitty corner grid of Manhattan because they are envisioning themselves to be part of a, a greater future. And so it, it, I needed Andrew Haswell Green to help me see the Harlem as a place of connectivity. And then once I got up kind of into the archives of the Bronx, I realized that there were lots of interesting local voices, um, kind of German democratic reform parties and people who built streets and were frustrated by the really sharp inclines of the, um, the territory of what's today the South Bronx. It's striated by three rivers that have um, kind of um, turned some famously poor infrastructures um, into kind of movie sets. If you've seen the movie, The Joker, those famous stairs in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. There's a famous set of stairs in the Bronx because the, the, the elevation of the two streets when you put a grid right on top, doesn't take into account that there's a, a gradient that would um, be terrifying on a sled, never mind in a wagon full of goods. And that we have to have, we have stairs that connect streets rather than uh, roadways, that's bad for commerce. So locals who are really interested in thinking about locally built urbanism as opposed to urbanism from implied from far away from city hall. And so when I got into the Bronx, there were just so many stories and I scratched the surface. I look forward to the day where someone writes 
the full Bronx treatment because there are so many more stories to be told, but Green helped me meet all these really interesting locals who knew they were important to the city, didn't have traditional city hall positions of power, but worked really hard to have their voice shape growth. And uh, yeah, that's fa fascinating. So in, in this case, sort of local interest, local boosterism, local frustrations, and ultimately local agency was largely in accord with the central planner's grand vision. Um, there are other times later on when maybe we don't see it pan out quite that way. But um, if you continue um, heading uh, along the shore uh, northeastward uh, from the original New York City, um, you end up in, uh, I guess, your home state of, of Connecticut. Um, and there uh, we're in chapter one um, and we're meeting um, someone I think everyone already is familiar with in very different context, P.T. Barnum. Um, and if I can back up a moment um, to uh, the first chapter where you have Steinway and you have Barnum and you have these sort of entrepreneurial city builders who are doing it very locally. They're doing it clearly separate from New York. They're not seeking the same kind of connection the same nature of connection, I should say, as uh, your, your folks in what's going to be the Bronx are, uh, but they have many similar, uh, they're similarly intrigued uh, by being connected to New York and nature uh, once again provides a way for that to be realistic. Um, can you talk about these characters um, and how you're putting both of them, not just Barnum, but Barnum and Steinway in a different light in this story? And they're both characters. It's, a, it's the perfect, right? They're both larger than life, which makes them fun to read and read their letters and archives and fun to uh, write about. And they get back to that question you started with, with who counts as a city builder? Well, I would argue in the 1870s, uh, local street improvement committees count as city builders. And I would also argue powerful people like William Steinway, one of the important politicians, culture makers, German American exemplars of kind of the immigrant success story. And then P.T. Barnum, you know, he's the, um, the king of what we would think of today as the kind of um, believe it or not kind of pop culture. He, the circus impression Aro, but he's also, he's much more than that, I discovered. And I, I learned about both of them by having to make, again, decisions about how to frame a metropolitan story. Because you can't do every municipality, you can't look at every county government official. So I was making choices about what corner of the metropolitan region to look at. So I decided I'd look at the Northeast and then I used the waterfront as a, a lens. Right? Then there were other ways you could do this. You could say, I'm gonna look at public school choices as a lens into metropolitan relationships and identity, which would be a fabulous book. And there are great scholars doing that type of work. Or I could look at infrastructure, just purely infrastructure. You could, could tell a great history of highways of the 20th century through these questions. And there are scholars who do that. And I decided to look at Waterfront because it's finite and finite things tend to be fought about and things that get fought about have archives, right? If people are mad, then something got written down. And I was interested in the, envi the, in the environment of the shore as this multifaceted thing. Uh, the coastal property is a set of property rights and legal property regimes that are unique. The public trust doctrine, which in America says, 
the American public has a right to access tide wash lands. The fact that coastal real estate is in the 19th and 20th centuries really economically important for industry. And then in kind of a post-industrial New York, it's about aesthetics and leisure and um, play. And then they always overlap. And so there's lots of people who are going to fight to have access to a thing. So I was, I was interested in that and these fights about kind of cultural and material nature along shore. And that got me to these two men. And um, it really is a gendered story here. These are about men with power in the political and social and cultural mix of late 19th century Gilded Age New York and their visions of what New York would be. And I think it's really important that it's both about the future with um, William Steinway and P.T. Barnum. And William Steinway is in Manhattan and he moves to create a company town, effectively. I argue a company town. I've had a little pushback that it doesn't count as a company town, but I have a broader view. And we can, if you're interested, we can talk about that. But um, what I think is effectively a company town in what Northern Long Island City, the Astoria neighborhood of of Queens. And he likes it because he sees it as part of a metropolitan network. It's close to Manhattan, but it's a little bit more controllable. It's also a place that he can invest in growth and then he can personally profit from growth. But in investing, he builds infrastructure that then want, that then is really attractive to urbanites and invites urbanization. And um, P.G. Barnum does a sim similar thing, but the scale is much bigger. He's thinking in terms of kind of satellite cities or suburban counterparts to the urban core, which was by the late 19th century, not unusual. Chicago's North Shore is full of stories like this. Greater Boston area is full of stories of kind of, you know, sub suburban networks and urban networks or satellite cities. That Bridgeport is a city that exists in orbit to the economic drives of, of uh, New York. And I was fascinated to see how much latitude these men had to, to effectively experiment in urban form and city planning. And so that gets back to this question, who counts as a builder? Because today we have city planners who have advanced degrees in landscape architecture and urban studies and city planning. But in the late 19th century, it's, um, it's not yet a profession in the way it is today. And so there's creativity and people are interested in urban form and there's regulatory systems in place from nuisance laws, which date back to kind of colonial era. New York um, often are ecological environmental, right? Like you can't dump this here because it's drinking water or you can't butcher a cow here because it's drinking water. It's almost always drinking water. You can't bury the people here drinking water. Uh, these are the kind of nuisance laws that we see in Philadelphia and Boston and New York. But these men have the latitude and finances and influence to, there's a little fake until they make it, which is very Barnum, but also to in, in, um, implement what they think urban form should look like. And there's no professional to say otherwise. There's landscape architecture, and that's the, the proto field to city planning. And so the great city planning lights of the early 20th century will look to landscape architects, like most famously uh, Frederick Law Olmsted. But this generation of garden and landscape designers who then become kind of increasingly broader in scope that all comes at the turn of the 20th century. And so in the late 19th century, what a city looks like is a place for real experimentation and 
that's how I ended up with Barnum and Stein, um, Steinway. I actually wrote the Barnum section and it was like its own little case study. And then the more I read about Queens and there's, this is just the kind of how I got to the archives and what semester and what summer I could get to which archives, which is not a glamorous story, but I could get to the fabulous archives at um, uh, LaGuardia or Wagner Community Colleges. Local archives are, are wonderful. This is like, I'm not a spokesperson for it, but I would like to plug how wonderful their archives are. By the time I got there, I said, oh, Barnum isn't doing this alone. There's actually Steinway's doing the same thing. They really invest in roads and they invest in kind of sewerage systems. So piped water in, piping waste out. They invest in parks, they invest in housing. And I think you could find others. And these are my case studies. But once you start to look for a pattern of kind of business entrepreneurs with a civic sensibility, looking to make money for themselves through in industrial and urban development in the city, my guess would be you could find one in every city in the satellite city of New York. That's fascinating. I, I, parenthetically, are there, I, there must be, there's Barnum papers somewhere. Are they at Wagner LaGuardia or are they somewhere no, else? Um, Barnum is harder to track down. Yeah. The, there is a, a Barnum Museum in Bridgeport. Right. But I um, actually never get to, got to get into the archives because Superstorm Sandy hit. These are just like the things of life, right? How everyone in 2020 has had this pause on archival research due to pandemic. Uh, Superstorm Sandy hit and really hurt the museum's collections and it was closed for a long time. Mm -hmm. So the way I had to, I had to work around those archives through uh, the, the Bridgeport Public Library's local history collection, which was wonderful. And then the real estate records in City Hall at Bridgeport, which have all of the, the transcripts for the buying and selling of property. And so there were some archives that you could get, but the local library, this is again, a plug for doing local history is really, it's just like microfilms at local libraries, which are is a, a real treat to do that type of work. And then city hall tended to, to be um, useful. The other thing is that Barnum as a showman loved to talk about himself. And so he would be interviewed whenever anyone could interview him. He tried to like bully Mark Twain into writing a book about him at one point. So there's an like, interesting correspondence there. It didn't happen. Uh, and he also writes autobiographies over and over again. And he edits them as he goes. And so I could read his multiple autobiographies for as his progress in city building in Bridgeport grew, how he reinvented the story of city building in Bridgeport. You could trace it across the way he sold himself and sold his city. And then finally, uh, he's probably the as it was often said at the time, the best known man in America by the end of his life. And so there is endless, breathless from art, from newspapers and literary kind of weeklies from Wisconsin and Kentucky and of course, Connecticut and New York. But there's breathless stories about what Barnum is doing in Bridgeport. So once you start to look for Bridgeport and Barnum together, not just the Fiji mermaid or his elephants, then he shows up in um, lots of surprising places. Well, that's, that's great. Um, and I appreciate and agree wholeheartedly with your plug for uh, doing this work at the local level in the local libraries. I, it, I can still remember as, as a graduate student um, having, uh, my, my wife had a uh, conference in Saratoga Springs and uh, I was like, well, while we're here, I'll wander down to the Saratoga public library and see what I can find. And 
found, randomly found some interesting tidbits. Just wherever you are, there's always going to be a, a good library with some some good materials, uh, and so that's that's fantastic. Uh, you, you mentioned um, that there's been pushback on Steinway. I think I've uh, gone on the record as appreciating your presentation, both of Barnum and Steinway, um, and uh, I've suggested uh, that you provide us with a, an alternative view and understanding of uh, the Gilded Age company town, but um, that doesn't make it not so. And so I, I'm inclined to uh, take your side on what I didn't know was a controversy, but if, you, if you'd like to... Uh, well, you know, there's only a couple people who are okay. very well, committed to the narratives, but enthusiastic, enthusiastic. I think the idea of a company town well, because I argue what the hallmarks of company town, control over labor population, and if not total control, majority control, um, kind of, I think, geographic control and, the, and controlling of transit access to and from that geography and control of real estate, that is all part of this, um, the creation of what is known as this a Steinway corner of Astoria, which is really part of Long Island City, all these kind of minutia of New York City neighborhoods. And they called it the Steinway section. And when you look at the property maps, Steinway owns just the vast majority of property. And there are a couple other, and I write about it in my book, there are a couple other companies, the Astoria Silkworks, for example, but Steinway is a partner in and the Silkworks headquarters are often using the Steinway piano firms offices for uh, doing their paperwork. And so it's that controlling interest. And I think that Steinway very, was very self-aware and having a personal vision of what that city would be. And it was his vision, which is to me, another hallmark of a company town and where coercion comes in for say the famous town of Pullman until in cultural and kind of, um, you know, reformist coercion. Steinway's also um, he parallels that in the, in the way that he fosters a German-American cultural identity, and he is anti-union in that. And so that's, an, I just, that's another symbol of a company town that you can really start to create like a typography, even if it isn't the pure control of a mining town or a lumber town in the, you know, in the American kind of Wisconsin, Minnesota lumber town story or a mining town. It's not Pullman, but I think it, there's enough there to understand it as a singular vision of singular control under a businessman for his profit. No, I, I, I mean, I, as I said, I, I'm on the record as completely agreeing with that interpretation. I, I think I, as you were speaking um, about the, the financial control, the labor control, the, I mean, it, I agreed with all that. And the one thing I was thinking is, and, and most importantly, it's his vision that is, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's what really makes the case, as, as you pointed out. Uh, now, you, now, you talked about Steinway's interest in German culture. Um, and I think that uh, brings us at least a little bit to I guess that's the third chapter, right? With the, the leisure corridor um, mm -hmm. and uh, the idea that a lot of a lot of people from the city moving out are it's it's not it, when we say the, the the center moving to the periphery and and implementing a vision. This isn't what we usually mean. Um, <laughs> and so you talk about the working class suburbs of the leisure corridor and a little bit of. Now, now it has its limits, as you as you point out, uh, but a little bit of opportunity for different kinds of cultural expression 
Um, I'd love to hear about that because I think it, it I didn't see this part coming. There, I, didn't, I didn't know uh, much about this at all. Uh, and so I think it's a fascinating intervention. I'd love to just uh, hear you talk about the leisure corridor and its rise and its, yeah. and its, and its, um, its diversity. Yes, it's it's a, a story about, so what do people do on the shores of greater New York? Well, they, they go to work, they, you know, they fill ships with goods that go across the world, they build docks, they build land, because real estate in a port city is always really valuable, so they fill in marshland to make saleable property. Um, and then people also go to the shore it's a very kind of human, non-time specific trait since the early to mid 1800s is that New Yorkers look for a place to cool off when it's hot. And they look for a place to relax and not just New Yorkers, you know, anywhere on, on the Eastern seaboard. That's a really, it's a really universal story of trying to find a place to relax in nature. And some people have the time and money to have a big fancy camp in the Adirondacks, right? Like a good Gilded Age baron. But this is another story that really spoke to me as a, a New Yorker moving through public transit. Is that like, where can you go for a Saturday to just escape the, 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 the crush of the urban grid? And so I was interested, I came to this because William Steinway and George Errett, his partner for this project, who's a, a, um, a big German beer maker in uh, the kind of Upper East Side Yorkville German enclave. Um, decide to make a beer garden and it's at the end of a trolley line and this is a universal American story. How do you make money on a weekend on a trolley line? You put something at the end of it that people will pay to go to and it's even better if when they get there there are amusements and rides and restaurants that they'll pay to buy things at. So again this is kind of business bottom line that then creates community amenities and um that's what happens in Northern Queens. It's exactly where LaGuardia Airport is today. So it no longer exists, but it was a beer garden with a swimming pier and some roller coasters. And it was distinctly German American in the fact that German lager was easy to get and cheap. And one of the people who I write about from the um, Lehman College's or Bronx Oral History, collection, which is interesting, right? It's the Bronx Oral History question which ends up writing about having the story of Queens, but it's about, it's an Irish family that moved through the, the city's boroughs. About they just, his family had a kind of a, um, a music hall and they would show silent films, sell some soda, like sarsaparilla sodas, or if you brought a keg, they would tap it for you in the field of undeveloped Queens behind. So they would, there's kind of a real low um, kind of low budget but also low revenue place to to hang out and for late 19th century German Americans that behavior is not welcome everywhere. There's great stories about when Central Park opens in the late 1850s and the German Americans are like this looks great and they bring their tubas and their children and their lager and the people who make Central Park are like that is not what we had in mind on Sunday. Get off the grass. <laughs> is that a baby next door a cake like what's happening and so it really shocks the kind of elite protestant community of what leisure and outdoor space looks like and they can do that up on the east river it's a little bit out of sight out of mind it's amongst other germans george Erd is happy because he's selling his own beer it's making germans happy because it's a place where they can be themselves without discrimination which is like a real problem in late 19th century american cities and so it's just a perfect example of 
of the opportunity of the undeveloped city edge. It's a place where people can experiment in urban form to, to meet their own needs. And they're really kind of working class people who want to kind of have a picnic in a field, in a beer garden, and just enjoy their families and their kind of cultural community for a weekend. And so those types of stories I found fascinating. And I was um, I was also charmed. It's always worrisome to be charmed by your history, right? You don't want to you don't want to root for anyone because you want to tell a good and fair story. But I was interested in the way that everyday people were really shaping space. And that gets us back to this question of who gets to shape space and who gets to add value to urbanism. And it worked that it was undeveloped and that nobody had developed Northern Queens because it was boggy and hard to get to. And that worked very well. And there's similar stories across the East Bronx and just basically every semi-picturesque point along Long Island Sound had a trolley park or a camp or a beach club. These stories go, are really kind of a universal response to undeveloped edges where land is cheap or unregulated, or maybe somebody owns it, but they don't really check and you can camp for, if you camp, it's a nominal fee. And I, I was drawn to that story of, again, of it helps broaden who counts as shaping urban form and what are the value systems that get built into urban form, which is a real classic city planning history question. But in this case, it turns out to be people who are not written about in the kind of chronology of famous city plans. And oftentimes it's because these spaces don't last, right? They, they fade to development, they fade to pollution, fade to changing cultural tastes, by the late 20s, a kind of dinky summer camp seems unsophisticated when you can see there are other options. There are movie theaters and dance halls and Coney Island is really kind of at its peak of sophistication. It then, of course, will become old fashioned and trite in its own turn. Coney Island will. So that kind of hubris of kind of cultural, of, of hipness, if you will, it, it comes and goes. And so when these places are erased, we lose the way that everyday people shaped them by, you know, co-op when you're standing in co-op city, which is this enormous post-war tower in the park housing, you don't get the sense that there was homemade summer camps that then became, you know, places of cultural connectivity. So I, first of all, I love that expression, the hubris of hipness. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think you just coined that because I, I, I'm, I may quote you in the future. I love it. Um, and some of them decide they want to live there, which I found uh, that, that, that was the part that really I, I didn't see coming. Uh, they're drawn there. First of all, I think it's, it's wonderful how you point out they're drawn there by this, this very understandable and to the present time relatable urge to escape the heat of of a city. Uh, I believe you've written about that in, in uh, popular media recently about uh, the, the heat islands still and, and, and what it means to be uh, in the summer in a, in a major city. Um, but they're doing this at first to escape that phenomenon, but some of them decide they, they, they want to live there. And they yeah. do it in this really I'm reading this the first time and I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm like, are they going to get away with this? Like, how are they going to pull this off? And you, you describe how these communities come together and you want to talk about sort of grassroots improvisational uh, uh, agency and city building. I mean, it's, it's a one, it's another wonderful example. I mean, how, if yeah, you can talk about that briefly. 
actually. It's fascinating to me. This idea that you can trans transform a summer camp into permanent year-round housing when the housing market gets tight, and that's particularly true in the First World War. The housing market stalls, and then there's a real demand. And so to make ends meet in the late teens, people move to their summer camps and then they live in them as they, they turn them into year round. So it's a real kind of homemade bungalow and a lot of them still exist. And so if you ever have the, the chance to drive through what was Silver Beach or Edgewater Park or Harding Park, these are very modest thousand square foot homes on very tiny lots with narrow streets and the city till this day, if you're interested in city zoning, which I'm always trying to convince my students that city zoning is fascinating and um, the audience is not on my team, but the city zoning today is still dealing with ramifications for how to zone these landscapes that are really self-built streets because you can hardly get a, um, two cars down them, never mind when you need a fire truck, right? So there's these real kind of municipal questions of what to do with these unique landscapes of Harding Park, for example, and people want to park their cars on the street, like, like all New Yorkers, it comes down to, can you get a parking spot? <laughs> um, and they, they turn these homes into year-round properties, but the way they make, a, it's a very complex and unique rental property system in which they own the building, but they rent the land. And so it's a land lease system, which is very rare in New York City. And they end up being turned into cooperatives, which is famous for the, the 1920s and 30s apartment buildings that are cooperatively owned by the tenants, which has its own fabulous history of housing in New York, this pushback against the kind of capitalist market to create an opportunity for cooperative working class home ownership. Today, today, cooperatives are having kind of different, um, marvelous Mrs. Maisel type of kind of she-she story to them. But a lot of them come out of labor unions and um, religious community groups that are looking to create housing that's affordable for an everyday New Yorker. So while my book is a city planning history, it's also a lot about how everyday New Yorkers function within those city plans, when the city plans ignore them, where the city plans don't work, or they don't get there yet, or people just say, nah, it's not for me. I'm doing my own thing. So it's a way to create working class homeownership in a city that we don't consider to be about homeownership or about real, when we think about real estate in New York, it never goes to the working class first. You think of the ultra wealthy. And there end up being like these waterfront bungalow communities. There are three still left in the East Bronx. And what I love about them is that across the way is the Gold Coast of Nassau County, the North Shore of Nassau County famously reimagined in F. Scott Fitzgerald. Looking forward now that we're out of copyright with The Great Gatsby, we're going to see all the, <laughs> all the retellings of this, of this imagined landscape. But the rich want coastal estates as well. And they get the pristine views. And then these bungalow communities end up in places that are a little more gently scenic. But not everyone can afford a Newport mansion or you mentioned Sar a Saratoga summer retreat. People need what fits their budget. And an East Bronx homemade camp turned home fits lots of budgets. And so it's a way to add kind of diversity of city building experience to um, the history of real estate in New York. It's not every part of New York, but again, if you went to the South Brooklyn shore and started to look at the barrier islands there, you can find these stories too. They're, they're out there as soon as you start to look at the local level. This is, again, you and I are starting to make a, a why you should do history at your local branch library. <laughs> well, I think it's great. And, and I think that um, the irony, I suppose, is that um, 
some of the factors that had attract, I mean, aside from the fact that it was available and uh, less expensive, some of the environmental factors that attracted these folks to these regions ended up falling victim, I suppose, to this poorly planned or, or not centralized planned um, development. I guess that uh, flips the narrative a bit to maybe some of the central planning that's going on in this time um, and how they're trying to control this sort of thing. And I, I think it's important that just as the creation of Five Borough, uh, modern New York City, uh, that story starts in the Bronx. Um, it looks like the planning story for you really starts with the Bronx as well. Uh, how is the Bronx River Parkway and all of that sort of a test case for what comes later and making the argument against the sort of improvisational grassroots city building that you're bringing into the story? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, the Bronx River Parkway is the first motor, landscaped motor parkway in America in the modern sense of that you would drive down this aesthetically pleasing kind of curvilinear road without billboards or industry or in the case of the Bronx River, Italian immigrants who are, have kind of um, uh, modest homes along the river, that all gets erased. And Randall Mason's uh, got a wonderful chapter in his earlier book about landscape preservation about this. So of uh, the Bronx River Parkway is like Robert Moses is to the urban historians, to the people who are interested in landscape history and uh, landscape design, the Bronx River Parkway is kind of unavoidably famous. And so it's this idea of leisure on the urban edge that is controlled from above by a regional authority, right? Often appoint, these are appointed authorities, they are not elected bodies, which is important in the way that they can impose a vision that is not directly um, um, answerable to, uh, to a voting population. So the Bronx River Parkway is created in the 19, opens in the 1920s, they started earlier, to be a place of leisure on the urban edge and that its cars are scenic and they're, they're, they're for play and, and pleasure. You would go for a Sunday drive and if anyone has ever driven on the Bronx River Parkway, you know that but still sometimes you get, you come up to the entrance ramp and there's a stop sign and then you're like, wah, and you have to just like roll in to merge with traffic that no longer goes 35 miles miles an hour. It's a very exciting, it's a very exciting driving experience to get on the Bronx <laughs> River Parkway and there's lots of parkways across um, kind of the eastern seaboard that have that exciting um, kind of old-fashioned modeled with very fast cars uh, experience. So it's, um, it's always a pleasure and terrifying to drive on those roads. You feel a little bit like you're on a roller coaster as you move through them. And so it's this vision that really inspires the state of New York. And this is where our research is so, um, so complementary and aligned um, that the state of New York says, that's a really good idea. This it raises property values. It makes the county of Westchester and the Bronx, they share this parkway. It makes the county of Westchester look really modern. And the state of New York really gets behind this concept of a regional parkway and regional park planning and the fact that this can't happen at a municipal level. There's too many environments, municipalities to move across. It needs to have some type of overhead, overhead um, a planning body from above. And the state of New York is interested in this 1920s because it has um, progressive governance that are looking for public goods. 
So um, Robert Moses gets his start writing a state park plan for New York, which is from a kind of reformist private group that they, they're, they're advocating for park development. And it goes to Governor uh, Smith, this guy I think you've heard of. Um, and then Smith says, this fits my kind of vision of democratic reform and projects for the state. And so he Tate is inspired by what's happening in the Bronx River Parkway and particularly Westchester because the county of Westchester itself is the first county north of the Bronx. And so it's the main, the southernmost mainland county of New York State. So it's always had a very close relationship with the city and it becomes a very popular suburb and a kind of avant-garde place for well-to-do suburban living. And um, it inspires the state and it really comes into maturation on Long Island. These ideas are taken up and championed as what it means to be a progressive suburban government in the 20s and the 30s. Modern parks, modern parkways, government control as opposed to uh, um, the hurdy-gurdy Barnum style of entertainment is being rejected for moral play and professionally designed parks and parkways and landscapes for a modern public to play in. And so that then kind of comes of age on the famous parks and parkways of Long Island, not without a great fight, but mostly is celebrated by those people who use the facilities. The people who live next to the facilities don't always celebrate great public works because NIMBYism has a long history of saying, that sounds like it might be loud as a neighbor, but in the 20s and 30s, it's really part of the progressive good government that the state envisions for itself. You make a couple of really important points here. Um, I'll mention them both because I'd like to explore them both and I don't want to forget. Uh, but one is, I, and I've pointed this out to you, um, I think you have one of perhaps the most balanced and I think appropriately balanced uh, interpretation of Robert Moses, certainly in, in this period. Um, and so you've introduced him. I'd love to hear more about Moses. Um, but then there's also this idea that um, you mentioned a few minutes ago in an earlier generation, in the directly earlier generation, uh, working class people didn't have access to the premium spots for recreation, but they still wanted it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they went about doing it themselves. And by this time, some of that's either crowded or polluted or antiquated or become housing. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so perhaps, and I'll, I'll let you assess this, there, there's an element of actually sort of grassroots democratic uh, opening up access uh, in this story. It's not all sort of these stern, um, dictatorial uh, planners. Maybe something good is happening for uh, the grad, for grassroots uh, New Yorkers here, but I, I don't want to uh, lead the uh, interviewee, but that, that's one thought. But first, <laughs> uh, and maybe, maybe these are both the same question. Um, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on Robert Moses and mm -hmm. how you see him versus the broader literature, because you can't say Robert Moses without people drawing up sides very swiftly. And I think uh, you navigate that very well. So uh, it's a dangerous that. thing to do at a cocktail yeah. party, right? You don't <laughs> yes. you never want to tell anyone that you're writing about Robert Moses. Everyone has an opinion, which is great. Cause then, you know, I, I do think there's, there, there are 
avenues in to think about history critically. And I think Robert Moses is an avenue that we can invite lots of people in. So I was teasing, not just people who are interested in 1920s uh, democratic progressivism, like you and I are, <laughs> but lots of people who have an inkling that Robert Moses is important or they they know is, you know, from the era of COVID of bookshelves that Robert Moses, Car Robert Caro's The Power Broker is on people's shelves. And um, I think that Moses, when I teach Moses at school at, at Queens College, I, I, we have classes where we think about pre-war and post-war because his career is so long. I think we need to think about it in segments and we need to um, not be um, kind of um, not like a, let like a, a teleological perspective where we know what's going in the end shape the way the questions we ask about early years, which is good history all around, right? We don't want to know what we're going to say at the end of it. We want to let our archives and our sources tell us the types of questions we can ask and answer in that moment. And so Robert Moses is interested in creating a public park system in the state of New York, and he works um, very closely with uh, Al Smith as his governor, and they're very successful in this. There are problems right off the bat. Moses is always appointed, never elected, and he has a massive power. He's a, a, he writes the legislation that creates the State Council of Parks for the state of New York, and then he's a, appointed head of the State Council of Parks when it is made. And then the next, that's in 24, and then in 25, he's appointed head of the Long Island State Park Commission, which is Nassau and Suffolk, so a huge swath of the state. He's in charge of that, and then in by 34, he's at the head of the New York City Parks Department as well, and set the head of the Triborough Bridge Authority, which he has asked the state to create, which is again appointed. So he has all this power in a way that he's not sharing power and sharing the democratic vision. But he is interested in public works in a city that has had a real kind of um, growing pains because William Steinway builds a park and he builds a beer garden and it really works for his community. But we can't in that we, we can't find those places 30 years later as development grows or those places aren't polluted because of where they sit in the um, kind of estuary of the greater New York industrial harbor, which is a really polluting uh, system. And uh, maybe not everybody wants to go to a place where there's lager beer and those people should have a place on the water to, to play as well. And so these questions of access and equity while I celebrate when local people can shape the shoreline for their own personal needs, it's always going to be a minority who has access to those places. And so in the 20s and 30s, we see vast public spaces that are really modern, that are made for the general public um, as, as broad as it is in this moment. And it's never, whenever you define a public, there's always an implicit of um, those who are not invited. And so the, the you can't define public without saying who isn't included in these spaces. But it is the most progressive we've seen in New York City's history by the 20s and 30s. And Moses is at the helm of that. And um, there's great debate about, does Moses like the public? Like, I think it's Francis Perkins who says he likes the public from above, but doesn't actually like the individual people. He finds them a little crass and messy, right? The individual person eats a chicken sandwich and then has to throw that trash out and that annoys Moses. But he likes the idea that there could be a, there is a public good that should be served by public funds in high caliber um, public spaces, which is pretty revolutionary in New York at the time. So if you were living in Queens in New York in the 1920s, you watch with glee as Jones Beach opens and modern roadways open. And maybe you and your family can go out there and go to a, a beach that's much cleaner than the water is at Coney Island by you. And it's 
modern and it's got beautiful tile and frescoes and design and it's for you. And that's a really empowering thing for a regular person in Queens, right? If you get back to these regular people and how they interact with an urban plan. And so Moses himself, from everything we know and everything I've read in his letters, is he's a little vulgar and he's bossy. And I'm sure he would say, it's not bossy if you know you're right. But then <laughs> the person who says that <laughs> might be a hard colleague to work with. <laughs> and his... Uh... His papers, um, I guess, New York Public Library. So, so you talk about different research experiences. Uh, there's sort of the local library with the uh, with the microfilm, and then there's this this palace that you enter, uh, mm -hmm. and you go into like the, the the locked glass room in the back with like the, mm -hmm. the dark green lights, and it's just and it's just very. You're, you, he couldn't have designed it better himself, but but that that's a, that's a beside the point. Ultimately, uh, when we're studying any of this history. And, and one of the great contributions of yours is that you have to always keep that human perspective in mind. And I think it's actually, it may, maybe it's something you could talk about here. Uh, it's something that I think is one of the, one of the many great merits of, of, of your book, Kara, is, is that you have these profound uh, sometimes sweeping interpretations that are really revisionist and uh, really give us a, a good uh, theoretical framework for applying this, as you've suggested, to perhaps other case studies. And yet it's not like floating off here, sort of irrelevant. It's always connected and grounded uh, to the human factor in this story. Um, is, there, is there an approach in the sources um, in the way you've done your research? You, you've talked a bit about it already. Uh, that you found useful? By the end, you know, um, was the cart leading the horse, the horse leading the cart at the beginning. By the end, I was determined to have the chapters alternate whose perspective of city planning. It goes back and forth from the local grassroots at, to the um, kind of levels of power within a government, whether it's a city government or a borough government or a state. And so it goes back and forth. And so the goal was that to never get too far away for every chapter that is about Frederick Law Olmsted and Robert Moses and Andrew Haswell Green. There's a chapter about people like Solomon Riley, who's a African um, American. Well, you know, it's not even a good. He's he's a Black West Indian um, real estate investor who wants to build a Coney Island that will be welcome to his community from Harlem to welcome to Black recreationalists. Which is, you know, there's a um, um, kind of culturalized Jim Crow segregation in New York's leisure spaces in the 20s and 30s. And so for every Robert Moses, we get a, a real estate investor like Solomon Riley, who has to work a system for local people with limited funds to try to get a vision of his community uh, to have a say in, in the city. And so the goal was that the chapters alternate because you could tell this story just through through the planners. And there's something lovely about planners who are building plans in the 1920s in this kind of that crested this progressive tide because they're very self-aware of their importance and they're very self-secure in their importance and they save all their letters. Yeah. <laughs> so you can go and read the, you read the correspondence and there's their mimeographed. So there's the letter that got sent out and then the letter that came back in and you have the complete correspondence. And it's very easy to write this history, city planning history in this moment because of the technology of how mimeographed letters work and the self-awareness of record creation and archival creation that these, these men 
have. And there, there's still men at this moment, the city planning era and the professionalization in the teens and 20s is still uh, a degendered profession largely. There are some work at women who managed to carve a voice in landscape design and kind of domestic landscape design that then expands their careers or in play reform and playground reform, which comes out of progressive era kind of women's house, women's municipal housekeeping where women can make claim to have political right and power, but it's still really mostly men in this moment. And so I worked really hard. So I'm happy that you noticed I worked hard to not have it just be a story of the top down because in the end, I'm gonna be a New Yorker who comes and goes and lives her life. And I will be the kind of the, the person whose letters don't get saved and whose story would just be in the collective community story. And so I, as a, as a person who's not a politician or a city builder or, you know, a power broker, I'm interested in the lives of people who are more like me than the most famous landscape architect in America by the 1920s, right? Gilmore Clark, like he's wonderful, but he's not everyone. And then you've got the pushback. I write about lots of people who are courting regionalism, city planners and everyday folk, but there's never consensus. I mean, no municipality has consensus, then there's always someone who's going to reject that the vision that regionalism is a collective whole, that there's a collective good and a collective system that should be planned. It's very natural that we see pushback against that because some people say, well, I don't apply or my community doesn't apply or I don't want my fate and my fortunes attached to this community or this price tag for this project. And so the North Shore of Long Island is a place where this happens. Famously, Moses meets some matches in the very wealthy, in the kind of, you know, the DeForests and the Goulds, the real deep pockets of the uh, mansion communities, the estate communities of the Gold Coast of Long Island, which is Fitzgerald's kind of imagined East and West eggs, kind of um, sands point of the North Shore of Long Island. So these people who really reject creation of a commonality and that public spaces should be included and their access should, public space should happen in their, in their communities. That is, um, that they move to these estate enclaves to isolate from a growing cosmopolitan uh, big government city. And so Nassau County exists because it was once part of Queens County. In 1898, Queens County, the Western end votes to join greater New York as a borough of the city, the eastern end rejects that common ground. And so the next year, 1899, Nassau County is created. It, it exists because its residents rejected inclusion in a metropolitan whole. And so we see that in the way that park systems, the metropolitan region, it wouldn't surprise you knowing that that's how it was created and rejection of the Tammany politicians who are running the city and the immigrants who make up its laboring populations, the fact of a laboring population at all, it's all part of that rejection. And so um, what is a rural agricultural place is increasingly bifurcated on its really beautiful coastal cliffs to be in a state enclave. And those people are very successful in pushing back on a vision of community good with really interesting results because, because of it, there is an intensive suburbanization in the way that lots of places in Long Island become very roundly critiqued for in the 1960s and the 1970s and the sociologists who are kind of wringing their hands about, you know, bowling alone in the end of culture because of suburbia. So Nassau County, you know, there's unintended consequences of sprawl that it doesn't undergo 
because of its estate communities. But they too will be flashes in the pan with income tax and property taxes that shift in the early 20th century. You know, it's um, personal income tax and personal property taxes aren't necessarily like a hot button history topic, but it really changes how owning an estate works. And then the Great Depression will really break those apart. And Moses is gleeful when those estates start to crumble because he sees them as backwards facing feudalist and not American, right? So it's a moment where he would then champion the masses against these, uh, what he saw as kind of unrealistic, sno unrealistic snobbery of the really well-to-do. So he's a complicated man, that Robert Moses. It's fascinating, yeah. I mean, he loves the masses when they're, I suppose, politically useful to furthering his vision. And then when they yes. show up in the park and, and make it dirty, they get on his nerves. But it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and it, it, it is, there is something incredibly prophetic about the fact that Nassau County's entire existence is a rejection of New York City and, 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 mm -hmm. of, and of being integrated in this regionalism. Um, and yet the depression does happen. There are forces that do start to um, break down some of the resistance to integration, never completely as you point out, uh, but uh, they provide opportunities for the regionalists, for the Moseses, Mosai, I don't know, for, for Robert Moses and people of his ilk. Um, and there's this incredible convergence in the thirties of crisis in Queens, uh, suddenly funding from the federal government, funding uh, for uh, the big party they're going to have and recognition that they need to do something more uh, sustainable and better planned out than the kind of uh, sewer, among other things, uh, crises that they brought on themselves. Um, and so is the 30s really uh, when your whole story flips from being one of development to one of the sort of now we've arrived, this is the moment they're going to implement all these various trends you've been describing and now it's modern New York, or is that too simple? I think, it, I think in a lot of ways, 1939-1940 Queens World's Fair, which is kind of the dumpster glory is what they call it, right? That's the, the kind of the, the guidebooks slogan. It's the, it's the culmination of a hundred years of growth of, of metropolitan rings and metropolitan conceptualization and big infrastructure projects. And I think it's an important place to, to pause this history and end that chapter because post-war Long Island in New York is gonna be a totally different set of levers for people with power or people wanting to have power to pull. Particularly the title one of the um, 1949 Housing Act, which is gonna create slum clearance programs and then the federal FHA guarantee of mortgages, which is created in 34, but really comes into its own with suburbia. And so the way that real estate is racialized and suburban growth is racialized and how slum clearance reshapes cities and the tower and the park, there's all these like big design um, questions that are often unfulfilled and a creation of really systemic racial inequality in American cities that is kind of built into the infrastructure through the levers of power that come out of the post-war era. And so um, there's fabulous and maybe unending work about what urban renewal means for New York. And Robert Moses plays a really important role in urban renewal and um, his legacy is, is almost always one of that New Yorkers, historians of New York look at with um, um, real, real regret at the way it built inequality and the way it, it hurts the fabric of the city with big highways across the South Bronx and 
the um, dislocation of communities of working class communities and to build places like Stuyvesant Town on the east side or Lincoln Center on the west side or the UN, all these symbols of modernity of the post-war modern landscape. It's a very different city than this type of infrastructure and where people find money and where people find power and who holds that power. The urban, the story of post-war New York has been written about extensively and beautifully and the scholarship is still growing. But all those power systems change. And so I think 1940 is a place where I see a natural conclusion it's also the wrapping up of the New Deal, which is the culmination of funding for New York, which is um, as a scholar of um, the progressive era and then Al Smith, you, you know this just as much as anyone else with LaGuardia as mayor in the depression and FDR um, in the White House in DC, the funding is outrageous in New York City. New York City is the 49th state for relief. One in $7 of WPA funds are spent in New York City transforms the city's landscape. And a lot of it is in Queens and a lot of it is really welcomed. Like Astoria pool, these are all kind of maybe two local things, but if you ever get to go to a public pool in New York City or Astoria pool is twice two Olympic sized pools together underneath this beautiful bridge in a beautiful park. And it's modern and it's clean and it's a lot cleaner than swimming in the East River. And so all these real public goods that change people's lives, uh, playgrounds and pools and um, the World's Fair is one of those places. And so it's Flushing Meadows Park. So um, if you've ever watched a Mets game, gone to see tennis, or, um, you know, what's that movie? Have you seen the first Men in Black? <laughs> it's the finale is in the, the World's Fair site. And so it's built for the first time in 39 and 40 under Moses and Parks Commissions and Federal New Deal funds. It all comes together. And it's called, um, it was Dumps to Glory because Fitzgerald, before he titled The Great Gatsby, this famous title, he calls it um, Between the Dumps and Millionaires, Ash Heaps and the Millionaires, because of the, there's actually a, a, a coal ash dump in the, in the park. And that kind of the difference between that and the estates of neighboring just like 10 miles down the road can be more, um, can be more clear about the futures of these places. But yeah, it's it, the 39-40 fair really culminates this sense of hope during the depression, modern infrastructure, federal funding, government funding, and it celebrates suburbia too. It, it seems like this incredibly optimistic moment. I mean, some of the uh, images that you use in that chapter um, of sort of these connections and I, what is it called? Futuramia? Futurama, which is General Motors, GMs. Yeah. Very expensive exhibit to convince you you need to buy a car. But, but I think it's fascinating too, because you talked uh, briefly about all the trends that other scholars have talked about post-World War II. You've set up the world. You've set up sort of uh, the rules of the game that those people are playing by. Now, some of them are the same people like Moses or, or, or the same people doing different things or what have you. But, but I think it's really fascinating because you give us the entire backstory that none of that really is possible. And you point out that the things that we... I, I wish I had your precise quote in front of me, but the things that we associate with modern New York, the highways, even the suburbs, even the, it is not the creation necessarily of these top-down central planners, but of this process that you uh, so convincingly narrate. Um, and so um, I, I just, I, I agree with you that it's, it's a really important turning point and, and a, an ideal in many ways, a uh, place to, to sort of 
wrap up your story. Um, thank you so much for talking about this with us. I'm happy we talked about local archives. I think that sometimes you say, I'm gonna write another book about New York City history. And people say, why would you do that? There are, there are so many of them. And part of it's liberating. You're like, well, it's okay that there are, I'm not gonna find a new borough, right? There isn't a sixth borough that no one knows I'm gonna tell this story of. But that fascinating public figures, always fascinating, and they should, we shouldn't tell the history of New York City without LaGuardia or Robert Moses. We need, the, we need to understand these people. But we miss so much if we don't think about the local archives and the stories that they can tell us if we're willing to take seriously the lives of regular New Yorkers. That regular New Yorkers have dreams of a metropolitan city. They have dreams today of what a future city should look like. And they want to shape their city just as much as a politician does, maybe even more because they live with the ramifications of inequality and in the um, environmental uh, decline and public services and public infrastructure that needs to be um, that needs to be addressed, right? The Bill de Blasio's experience of a slow F train is very different than someone else who, who must take the train to get to work. And so I think that local history, all politics is local, they say. But local history and local municipal archives, neighborhood libraries, branch libraries are places we can still tell new histories about New York, particularly in the outer boroughs. There's so much to write about in Queens and the Bronx. And I will always read the next book about Central Park. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm always here for that history. And I'm fascinated by new analysis and new smart analysis is always out there. But I think there's uh, local people and local histories that can tell us a lot about big picture ideas if we're willing to give their voices kind of like equal access. Well, I'm happy that we talked about the heroicism of a branch library. I am too, and that was that's really well put. What is what are you working on now? Tell me about I'm, that. I'm writing an urban environmental history of New York City pre-climate control. And again, it gets to everyday life. My experience with weather and nature environment as an aspect of nature and weather as an aspect of environment is in the rain and the sl slush and cold weather and gale force winds that come off the bay. And so while well, Central Park is there and it's a big piece of environment and the bay is there and it's a big piece of environment, my tactile everyday experience of environment is through weather. So it shapes the way I live in my private space, how I interact with public spaces when I'm hot and I'm cold, if the snow gets cleaned off the street or not. These are all everyday questions of environment. And so I'm looking at a history of interaction with environment as, um, as understood through weather in late 19th and early 20th century, pre-climate control, because the air condition, uh, air conditioned nation of post-war America hides a lot of these challenges for uh, people who can afford AC. But I'm interested in the environmental questions and the way public space is used and how people approach hot days and ice storms in um, the late 19th and early 20th century in their everyday lives. So how do you keep an apartment warm? What happens if you can't afford coal? What do you do when it's really hot? How do you cool off in a city that has so much kind of um, retained heat? So that's where I'm writing right now. It's um, been really fun. It's been really fun to read about everyday New Yorkers and it's just, it's really just social, it's another social history. And um, I was looking at the people when they don't go out to Jones Beach for the day. What are the other six days of the week like? 
that sounds fascinating and I look forward to reading it and hopefully talking to you about it sometime. Uh, well, there's, there's, um, there's many a page to go, Rob, but one day we'll get to talk about spending the night up on a tenement roof in August. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Kara, for being uh, with us here on Empire State Engagements, and I'm so grateful for your time, and uh, thank you very much. It's been a true pleasure.